Thanks, Joshua. And just again, a reminder that if you haven't signed up for small groups, there are tables out in the lobby, so make sure you check those out. We have a lot of options for you out there to look at different days, different places, different types of study. It's all out there, and there's going to be people out there to help you get, answer any questions you might have. If there are any of our youngest children who'd like to go to Stepping Stones, our program for kids during the sermon time, you're free to go. And please turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua chapters 20 and 21. We're continuing our series of study through Joshua. We'll be looking at the content of chapters 21 and 22. But as you'll see in the bulletin, our focus will be upon the nine verses of chapter 20 and then also the first three verses of chapter 21. Please give your attention to God's word. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give, him up, or give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, to the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kedesh in Galilee in the hill country of the Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in the Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, the Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. Well, as Owen mentioned earlier, this past week has been a time for us to soberly consider the fragility of human life, the transitory fleeting nature of the possessions that we own and the vanity of putting our hope in those things inherently. I'm sure like me you've seen dozens maybe even hundreds of pictures and videos of people just like you and me wading through waist-high floodwaters carrying armloads of whatever possessions they could grab that they could hold that they felt were important. It's a sobering picture. 
to realize that these families would be going into shelters, and we know that there are over 30,000 people in the past week that have been living in shelters, leaving their homes and not knowing if they'd have any home to go back to. We know that dozens of people died in those floods. Shelters. It's another word for a refuge, a safe place, a place where you can run to to be safe when your life or your possessions or your reputation, whatever it may be, is a threatened in danger. This chapter, chapter 20, that is the main focus of our time this morning, is about a refuge, a set of refuges, cities of refuge, which were shelters in a different kind of storm. Certainly natural disasters, hurricanes and things like that can threaten our lives and our possessions, our status in life. Those can certainly threaten those things, but there was a threat that they had to deal with in a greater way in the days of Joshua that this chapter is talking about. And that's a threat of accidentally causing the death of another human being. In ways in which we can't understand in our modern culture, if you caused a death accidentally with no intent, there were consequences. And your life would suddenly become in danger, and we'll explain that in a minute. In Joshua's day, they, did, they didn't have the technology and the safety precautions and the medical help to make life safe like we know it in this modern era. Life was much more primitive, more simple back then, but it was also much more dangerous. Ordinary activities like hunting and gathering food, cooking food, building houses, these are things that were a lot more dangerous then than they are now. And accidental death was a much bigger part of their lives. I know in my great-grandparents' lives, it was common back in that era to lose a child. Families were bigger, and one of the reasons they were bigger is they knew that it, it was a high likelihood that at least one of their children would die due to some accidental cause. The Sixth Commandment, though, deals with the taking of human life. God's law says, you shall not murder. And the punishment for murder that was prescribed by the law of God was that the murderer was to have his life taken. It says it this way in the book of Exodus, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. And the way in which murder was handled, we're going to get to unintentional murder in a minute, but you have to first understand how murder was dealt with in that culture, in that place, in that time, is different than the way we deal with it today. The form of justice that they had for murder was related to something called the avenger of blood. Saw that phrase in there. It has nothing to do with Marvel comics. It's the avenger of blood was actually a uh, judicial... uh, station for somebody to be in, a judicial, judicial position. And the avenger of blood was actually somebody different depending on the situation because the avenger of blood was the nearest male relative of the person who had been killed. And to understand that system, you had to understand that any time a person was killed, it was the avenger of blood's job, his responsibility, to execute the killer. 
that the penalty for murder was death and it was the avenger of blood's responsibility to execute the killer. This is before governments were much more organized later in time and this is the way that was handled because this was such an important commandment of God to enforce. Understand this wasn't revenge. It sounds like revenge to us. It wasn't a revenge killing. It was a just retribution under God's law. It was capital punishment. There is a legitimate, we tend to think of it as an Old, Old Testament idea, but there was a legitimate principle behind the law of God in the Old Testament. We call it an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and here in the case of murder, a life for a life. That's not grace. We talk about grace later, but in the law, you have to understand the law before you understand grace. According to the law, retribution meant that whatever harm you cause is caused back to you as a punishment. That's one of the principles that was applied. And so the killer's life was in danger, even in the case when it was an accidental death. Because the avenger of blood, his job was to carry out the execution. He was not given the responsibility of discerning the intentions of the killer. We know how difficult that can be. And in our judicial system, we allow for that discernment to be made. What intentionality was there behind the actual killing that took place? And so some extra provision had to be given in God's law for the fact that the avenger of blood could not make that discernment, that, that the, the people, the, the uh, judicial process, so to speak, in that day should make that discernment. And so God sets up these cities of refuge, a safe place, a place to flee to when a death takes place, when you've got blood on your hands, whether you intended to have blood on your hands or not. And so I know it's hard to figure out the relevance for a passage like this. What does this have to do with Americans in the 21st century? But it's always helpful when you're talking about the laws of the Old Testament to understand that according to the Westminster Confession of Faith, the, the general equity of the Old Testament laws still apply, even though the application of the principles behind the laws may be different today than they were in that time. And so what's the general principle when it comes to human life that lies behind these, this whole system of avengers of blood and cities of refuge? There's a novel idea for you, having a moral principle behind your legislation. I think we, our representatives should learn from that. One of the principles is that when murder is not dealt with, when killing is not dealt with, in the language of scripture, there's the land is defiled by blood. That's the phrase that the Lord would use. When killing is not dealt with in the right way, the land would be defiled by blood. The principle behind this is what we call, in our age, the sanctity of human life. That there's something special about human life. That human life did not get here by means of an accident, by a product of time and chance over long periods of time. It's not the result of blind biological processes, but, but human life was created as a special act of God. That we are different than the other creatures that God made. Because we are made in his image. Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. 
male and female, he created them. That is one of the big planks in your worldview, that human life is specially created in the image of God. Our spiritual nature reflects the very glory of God because we are made in his image. And it's important to understand when we talk about the sanctity of human life, what's the one big issue everybody hears out there when we bring up the sanctity of human life? Abortion. And that is absolutely true. We believe that human life is distinct at the point of conception and that that human life is to be protected in a just society. But I'm here to say that it's not just about abortion. The sanctity of human life, the fact that human life is made in the image of God affects all the big hot button issues of the day. Everybody's talking about racism. If you understand that all human life is made in the image of God, we are equal in that sense, racism should be abolished. It applies to gender identity. It, you know, the idea that we are made in God's image, that we are specially created the way we are, it's not up to us to define who we are. That concept of the sanctity of human life because we're made in the image of God affects your view of gender. A very hot issue these days. Healthcare, genetic engineering. So many of these social issues we're arguing about, but nobody's going back to the core principle that human life is sacred because we're made in the image of God. And that has all has bearing on the question of the taking of human life. To intentionally harm or kill a human being who is made in the image of God is to desecrate the image of God. If you were to ask the question, what's the biggest sin that a person could commit, somebody might say, well, blasphemy. To verbally assault the image of God, to speak against God, to demean God, to commit blasphemy is the worst sin. But in a very real sense, murder is worse because you're not only speaking against the image of God, you're actually treating the image of God and human beings as something worthless to be thrown away. So this is, in a real sense, a very, very, very serious sin. And it must be dealt with. And God instructed, before the law was given to Moses, at a crucial time in human history, in the days of Noah, when God became so angry at the wickedness and depravity that filled the earth, and so he executed mankind in one fell swoop with a worldwide flood, but saved by grace the family of Noah, and he set Noah down in this renewed creation, still fallen but yet renewed and cleansed, he gave him the same commands that we talked about last week to take dominion, to rule, to be a good steward of the creation. But then he adds an instruction that's new because this is now a fallen world, unlike what Adam and Eve were created into. Sin would, would be such a huge issue. The taking of human life would be a huge issue. And it's interesting that in a sense, God sets up the whole basis for the power of the sword that, Rome, that Paul talks about in Romans 13 when he gives Noah this command for all mankind. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, this is Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. It's an important verse given before the law of God was spelled out, before the sixth commandment was given against murder, 
that when man sheds the blood of another man, his blood is to be shed as a just punishment. Because why? Because God made man in his own image. And it all goes back to that principle. You see, that we argue about whether the death penalty should be in place in any given society. The arguments tend to revolve around logistics. Like, does the death penalty really deter criminals from committing murder? As you see, according to the word of God, that's irrelevant. What's important is, do we value human life for what it is as God created it? The core issue is how we look at human beings. Do we see them as made in the image of God? And do we honor that image of God in all human beings? And if you see human life that way, then you begin to understand why the penalty for intentionally taking human life is execution, the death penalty, capital punishment. The Orthodox Church of Jesus Christ has always consistently said that we are both, that we are pro-life, but pro-life means also being pro-capital punishment when murder takes place. You know, people don't understand how Christians can be pro-life when it comes to unborn children, but also be pro-death penalty for murder. But if you understand that the core principle is the image of God in man, then you begin to understand how both are very pro-life. We demand that the just punishment for murder be this because of our value of human life. And the reason that people, I think one of the reasons, we have desensitized ourselves to death. We accept it as so common. We play video games where we kill each other all the time. We watch movies. We watch television shows. There's so much taking of life that we're, we're desensitized to it. Our hearts grow hard to it. And we lose, fat, lose the sight of how precious human life is in the sight of God and the extreme value of it. So God's law demands that when life is taken intentionally, that the life of the murderer be taken. But what about this case that we talked about where an unintentional killing takes place? As I studied this passage this week, I remembered a story I'd read about a woman who went to a party and across the room she saw an off-duty police officer that was a good friend of her, so she went trotting across the room to give him a big hug, and when she hugged him, he didn't have the safety on and the pistol in his holster, and somehow, I don't know how, that gun went off when she hugged him tight and shot her right through the heart, and she died on the spot. Talk about unintentional killing. What would God say is the right way to respond to that? Obviously, in our courts, that would be proven as an accident, and there would be no penalty involved. But it's not quite that simple. And you're talking about certainly different times back in the days of Joshua. But it's interesting. I think we learn some things by the way that that kind of thing is handled in the Old Testament in the days of Joshua. First of all, we look at chapters 21 and 22 of of Joshua. The big topic here is that the Levites, which was the tribe of the priest of of the 12 sons, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, Levite was the tribe that didn't get a possession. We talked last week about the spheres of influence and authority, the lands that were given to the different tribes. Well, the Levites were not given land. They were to be 
the Lord was to be their inheritance, which meant they were to be direct servants of the Lord at the tabernacle and in the temple later. They were to offer the sacrifices for the sins of the people, and they were to be the teachers of the word of God. They were to be the ones who gave spiritual care to the life of God's people. And so according to the law of God, they didn't own any land, but they were to be given as a kind of a tithe from the 12 tribes. They were to be given a cities to live in, where they could live in and be supported, so to speak, kind of like pastors are in, in, in many ways, missionaries. They're supported so that they could do this spiritual work full time. And they were to be given 48 cities, towns and cities scattered all over Israel. But among those 48 cities given to the Levites, six of them were to be designated cities of refuge. These were strategically placed. They weren't just scattered. They were actually very carefully placed in Israel. Remember we talked about Joshua gave lands to two of the two and a half, two and a half of the tribes on the east side of the Jordan, and the rest of the tribes received their land on the west side of the Jordan. Well, these cities of refuge were to be one in the north, one in the middle, and one in the south on each side of the river, six altogether, three on each side of the river, but evenly spaced in the north, middle, and south. The reason for this was so that they would be easily accessible to anybody in the country if a killing took place. So that the killer, whether it was intentional or not, could run to the city as a place of refuge, a place where he'd be protected, at least temporarily, from the avenger of blood, the one that was coming to execute him. He would go to the gates of the city, that's where the elders met, and he would meet with the elders and he would present his case, and they would, that was kind of like a preliminary hearing where they'd decide, did he, seem, did he seem to have any case for this being an unintentional killing? If it was, then they would keep him there, protect him there from the avenger, and then later there would be a trial. He'd be held over for trial, so to speak. It's amazing how much of our judicial system is based on biblical principles like this. Held over for trial by the congregation, the assembly, which was a court of, of leaders probably from his hometown, that would determine whether he was guilty of intentional killing or unintentional killing. Did he, was it an accident or was there intent to kill? If he was found guilty by this court, he would be turned over to the avenger of blood to be ex executed. If he was found to be innocent, he would be allowed to live in that city. He could not leave that city. And if he did leave that city, the avenger of blood could kill him without any consequences. But he, he was to stay in that city for either the rest of his life or until the high priest died. And that was the city of refuge. You see there that even in an unintentional killing, an accident, there were still consequences. Why? Because killing was a very serious matter. Innocent blood being shed was a very serious matter. And even though this killer was not to be punished as a murderer, still it's interesting that there are consequences to the accident. And so he would have to live in the city until the high priest died. And so these cities of refuge were to ensure that justice was done when blood is shed. But there are hints in here of something far greater that was to come in the future. Just the whole idea of the high priest. The high priest was the priest above all priests. He was the one from the, from the line of Aaron who was responsible on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for the sins of the nation. The high priest is the one who is the best foreshadowing of the great priest to come, who is Jesus Christ. 
And it's interesting, there's so many hints of the person and work of Christ in the cities of refuge, in that he came as our great high priest, and it is his death that frees us from the consequences. Jesus Christ is what all of scripture points to, and even these cities of refuge, by way of both similarity and by contrast. Similarity in that Jesus Christ is our refuge, but contrast in the sense that he's not only the refuge for those who accidentally kill, but he's the refuge for those who murder as well. He's a refuge for the innocent, so to speak, in the terms of men, and also the refuge for the guilty. Because I have some bad news for you this morning. If you've been sitting here for the last 15 or 20 minutes thinking this sermon doesn't apply to me because I've never murdered anybody and I've never even accidentally caused anybody's death. There may be somebody here who has accidentally caused a death. Likely there isn't. High likelihood there's nobody here who's murdered before. But this applies not only to those people, but it applies to all of us. Because when Jesus Christ came, he had to come first with the bad news which is it's not only outward killing that makes you guilty before the law of God, it's the killing in the heart. That's what he was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. He said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. By the standard that the Lord Jesus Christ set up before us, I have been guilty of murder at least a couple of times in the last couple of days. I was cut off in traffic by an angry driver. And I, at least in my heart, if not verbally, I said, you fool, you idiot. I was standing in line during my break yesterday during the football game at the concession line and had a group of students cut in line in front of me. And in my heart, I'm saying, you fools, you idiots. Now, I say that partly to lighten the mood, but also to underline the point that I murdered those people in my heart. That the sin of murder begins in wanting to tear down and harm and destroy the people who get in our way the people who frustrate us, the people who don't give us what we want. That's murder. And we're all murderers in the eyes of God, whether we've actually acted on it at any given time or not. We all have blood on our hands. And murder is only one of a myriad and and one of just innumerable ways in which we have broken every one of God's commandments, even in this past week. The wages of sin is death, and every transgression of every one of God's law is punishable by our one true judge, by eternal death. That's what we deserve. But the avenger, the ultimate avenger, Jesus Christ, who one day is coming again to punish all sin, is also the one who has come to bring mercy, to bring grace. To bring forgiveness. He has come to become the fulfillment of what the cities of refuge only in a very vague way shadowed, foreshadowed. He came to be our refuge, an accessible refuge for the guilty because there are no innocent. In our guilt and shame we flee to him 
who is our great high priest. The reason he can be a refuge from even the sins of murder and stealing and lying, all the sins that we've committed, the reason he can be a refuge is because he's the great high priest who not only died to free us, but was raised from the dead and ever lives to intercede for us before the Father in heaven. And so, for those who trust in him as their risen Savior, we are safe from the justice of God. That's the gospel. That's what we believe. According to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 18 to 20, it says that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so I think the question we close with is, as you've thought about people in Texas fleeing floodwaters to the refuge of a shelter in danger of losing everything, what do you flee to when your life is in danger? What do you flee to when your soul is in danger? Have you fled to Christ? Have you found the safety that is in him? In Shakespeare's play, Macbeth, there's a very familiar and popular scene that's often quoted where Lady Macbeth, after having killed the king with her husband, is sleepwalking, racked with the guilt of her murder. And she's sleepwalking through the castle and she's overheard to, as she's walking through the castle halls, rubbing her hands together, trying to get the bloodstains off her hands and saying it's impossible, she can't wash out that spot. And you think, wow, that's a great picture of the reality of so much of humankind. Rubbing hands, trying to get rid of a, a, a spot of guilt on their soul that can't be washed away. But as familiar as that scene, that's not the most powerful statement that Lady Macbeth makes in that scene. It comes a little later in the scene when she says this, what's done cannot be undone. What's done cannot be undone. And praise God, because Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, and he did what he said he would do, he was crucified for us and raised from the dead for our justification, that we might be safe in him, that he might be our refuge. What's done can be undone, justly at the cross. There are legitimate causes to mental illness that are physical hereditary, genetic, chemical-based. There's legitimate mental illnesses in the sense of something that nobody brought on themselves and it's a handicap they have to deal with in life. But in reality, we're all mentally ill. And actually, I don't like applying that label to only a subgroup of people because the only perfectly mentally healthy, emotionally healthy person that ever lived was Jesus Christ. And the rest of us are all on the spectrum, somewhere between total insanity and Jesus Christ. And we're a lot closer to total insanity than we are to Jesus Christ. We are mentally ill, but it's an illness caused by our sin. And I think that for the rest of us, 
our mental illness, we need to understand that. Like Lady Macbeth, the only cure is for what's done to be undone. The main reason that the rest of us are mentally unhealthy is because we're not dealing with our sin through the gospel of Jesus Christ because that's the only way to deal with sin. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't have any way to deal with your mental illness because that's the only cure for that kind of mental illness, emotional illness, soul illness, the depravity. Psalm 34, 22, and I'll close with this. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The Lord is our refuge. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the table of the Lord, we come seeking refuge. Lord, we come needing healing. We need to be made whole. We need to be restored spiritually, emotionally, intellectually. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. He is our great high priest who has shed his own blood that our sins might be washed away. Forgive us for the murders in our hearts as well as all the other sins that have placed us under your condemnation. Thank you, Lord, that you have provided a way of rescue, that you have provided Christ. You have provided Christ to be our refuge from your condemnation. We are safe in him for all eternity. Thank you, Lord, we pray in his name.